0: Isaiah 49. We're only doing chapter 49, a little bit of chapter 50. We're going to save part of cha- the, the second part of chapter 50 for Sunday morning. So it's not a long um, amount of verses. I was going to say it's not a long study, but that really depends, doesn't it? <laughs> <laughs> I am just loving this this section of Isaiah. Once we hit chapter 40, the book of consolations and the latter half of Isaiah and how, how from here all the way to the end it is about the consolation of Israel and the comfort of God for His people. We hear more and more about what Paul called the Mysterion, the Messiah, the servant of the Lord. And, and the five servant songs all contained in this second half of the book. And we keep hearing from and seeing Jesus in these things. I was thinking, I wonder if I wasn't raised in a Christian home with a Christian worldview and Christian parents, I wonder if by just simply reading Isaiah, I could see Jesus. And part of me thinks absolutely I could, and part of me wonders, well, would it it not be somewhat of a mystery as it was to Isaiah himself or to the Jewish people listening? Uh, More about that in just a minute, but beginning in verse 1 and what we read on Sunday morning, let me read the second servant song to you one more time. Listen to me, O islands, and pay attention, ye peoples from afar. The Lord called me from the womb, from the body of my mother. He named me. He has made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of His hand, He has concealed me. And He has also made me a select arrow. He has hidden me in His quiver. He said to me, you are my servant, Israel in whom I will show my glory. But I said, I have toiled in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing in vanity. Yet surely the justice due to me is with the Lord and my reward with my God. Now says the Lord who formed me from the womb to be His his servant, to bring Jacob back to Him so that Israel might be gathered to Him. For I am honored in the sight of the Lord and my God is my strength. He says, it is too small a thing that you should be My servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved ones of Israel. I will also make you a light of the nations so that My salvation, My Yeshua, may reach to the end of the earth. Servant song. This is a mystery. The servant songs of Isaiah all sing of a mystery. Paul referred to this. Ephesians 1.9 in Colossians 1:26 through 27, in Colossians chapter 2, verse 2. In fact, much of the book of Colossians is about the mysterion and Paul says was was something that was kept hidden for a long time, something kept secret. And truly, for all of the prophets, the very identity of Jesus Christ was concealed, was hidden in God's quiver, locked up as it were, until Jesus came. I think it's interesting. It says that he is like a select arrow hidden in his quiver. When the Bible talks about a quiver and arrows in the quiver, it always is speaking in terms of a father and his children. And so for the select arrow to be in the quiver of the Lord, you get the picture there a Father and His Son. His hidden Son. His Son that that nobody sees, no one is aware of until Jesus came. And that's why I think so many of the Jewish people were, were uncertain when they first started to see Jesus. They began to ask questions about who this Jesus really is. And His claims began to emerge that He was Messiah. Can we believe Him? Does He fit the mold? Do we see these prophecies being fulfilled in him? You see, the Hebrew prophecies of Messiah are like pieces of a jigsaw puzzle. If you can imagine just pouring them out on a table. I have some friends who they have a game they like to play with their kids. They told me about this years ago. They would take a bag and they would just pour all the jigsaw puzzle pieces of all their jigsaw puzzles into the bag. And in the fall, they would pour the bag out on the table and say, Go for it. No picture or anything. And the kids would have to try and put it together. Well, Hebrew prophecies like that. The problem with trying to put together a jigsaw puzzle without the pictures, you don't know really where the pieces go. I mean, sure, you can find the corners if you want to cheat. You know,
1: <laughs> you can look for the
0: the flat edges that you know. Okay, that's got to be a side. You can try and find the sky up on top. You know, but until you have the picture before you to look at. that's how we always do jigsaw puzzles in my house. When we do them, we pour the pieces out, we set the picture up, and then we start to look and make the picture happen. That's Hebrew prophecy. And God knew this, that until the sun came, until the servant arrived, it wouldn't make sense. People wouldn't be able to put all the pieces together. They just didn't work. You know, you have, as we said Sunday, prophecies of a suffering servant, a man of sorrow one who would die, who would be a sacrifice. And then you have these other prophecies of a glorious king triumphantly coming into Jerusalem, reigning and ruling a king. Well, which one is it? Is it a dead man or a king? And if the dead man is going to come, if the man's going to come and die a sacrifice, well, then how can he be king? So, and a lot of the Jewish people, even today, would just skip over the suffering servant. Or we will just assume that the suffering servant of Isaiah is just Israel, it's us. Just kind of a personification of of the people of Israel. But the real king, the real Messiah, the glorified stuff, that that is to come. I had a meeting again this week with a young man, a Jewish guy, and, and we were just talking about this, and he believes Messiah is coming. He just doesn't believe Messiah has come yet. And that's the difference. I believe in two comings, a first and a second. He believes in one, just the only one, when he'll come to rule and reign To rule the world with a a rod of iron as the Hebrew prophecies tell us. Well, God gave us all the pieces and this is a marvelous plan. All the pieces of the messianic puzzle both for His first and His second coming. And then, when the time was right, He showed us Jesus. And suddenly the pieces, oh, that goes here. And that goes here. And this fits right. Oh, I understand. And we begin to put the puzzle together and it makes beautiful, perfect sense. And that's how the Hebrew prophecies work. Jesus said you search the Scriptures because you think that in them you find life. Well, it is these that testify of me. These are the pieces. Put them together. And we have both Jesus to look at now on this side of His coming We have him to look at, and we have the puzzle pieces, and that's why it all fits so marvelously together. Paul said in Romans 16.25, Now to him who is able to establish you according to my gospel, and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery, which has been kept secret for long ages past, but now is manifested, and by the Scriptures of the prophets, according to the commandment of the Eternal God, has been made known to all the nations, leading to obedience of faith to the only wise God through Jesus Christ be the glory forever. Amen. And the servant song declares that the servant himself would be sorrowful, would struggle. I think, honestly, the teaching that we went through on Sunday morning is probably one of the most important that we've ever done. And I say that In line with any time, we really focus in and we talk about Jesus, which I guess is all the time. But we really looked at Him and and asked the question, where is our identity found? And I specifically was trying to get a message to our teenagers. Your identity is found in Jesus Christ. Any other place you look for your identity, you will be sorely disappointed and you will end up lost and confused. But find your identity in Jesus. Be the disciple whom Jesus loves and your life will make sense. And you will end up walking with Him and understanding Him. And it will be glorious. But we see in this servant the suffering, the sorrow. Keep that in mind as we go forward tonight because what's marvelous about the rest of the chapter is now that the song has been sung about this servant, the Lord responds to His servant. The servant who says, there again, in uh, verse 4, I have toiled in vain, I have spent my strength for nothing and vanity, yet surely the justice due to me is with the Lord and my reward is with my God. Jesus was discouraged. Jesus felt disappointed. Jesus was sorrowful. He would look around at all those who He came to and see their rejection, feel their rejection. He would look beyond Israel at the world round about and know that they were oblivious to His presence. Didn't even have a clue that he was there. And so as we continue in chapter 49, the Lord God responds to his discouraged servant. Verse 7. Thus says the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel and its Holy One, to the despised one, to the one abhorred by the nation, to the servant of rulers. Three things here, three names that the Lord God gives Jesus, Yeshua, the Messiah. He calls him these three things. First off, the despised one. Well, that's an odd name for the Messiah. (laughs) The servant of the Lord. The glorious coming King. The despised one. And as I was sharing, it is probably the single most difficult thing for Jewish people today to understand about their own prophecy. Who are awaiting their coming Messiah. To understand that the glorious Messiah is glorious, but the suffering servant is... Is problematic. Suffering servant, how does this work? After the transfiguration, Jesus and Peter and James and John coming down the mountain, Jesus said to them, Don't tell anyone what you've seen. He says, Until the Son of Man rises from the dead. Then you can talk all about this, but don't do it until that point. Well, Mark chapter 9, verse 10 tells us they seized upon that statement, discussing with one another what rising from the dead meant. see that's what man does we look for the allegorical when the plain and simple is right before our eyes What's, what's the metaphor here in this rising from the dead thing is he talking about the springtime perhaps no he's just talking about rising from the dead it is what he says it is but they're discussing this and they're debating this and immediately listen to what they ask him why is it that the scribes say that Elijah must come first their question betrays their thinking What do you mean? I mean, the question was one about the second coming of Christ, not about the first. The question they asked was about Elijah coming before the great glorious day of the Lord, before the coming of the mighty one, the great King Messiah. Why does Elijah come? So they jump ahead and completely skip over the idea of a suffering servant. And that's what Jesus was talking about. When he said, don't talk about this until the Son of Man rises from the dead. He's got to go through that first. They are asking about the second coming, which they did a lot. fact, track the apostles, even right before Jesus' ascension. Remember what they asked? Is it now that you're going to restore the glorious kingdom? you still thinking about the kingdom. There's a lot of suffering that's got to take place first, boys. And it all started with Jesus. He said to them as they were asking Him that day, why did the scribes say Elijah must come first? Jesus said, Elijah does come first and restore all things. And by the way... <laughs> John the Baptist was a picture of Elijah, but the Bible is clear. The Elijah will come before Jesus comes in His second coming. There will be, I absolutely believe, the Scripture is just so black and white about it, there will be an appearance of coming of Elijah before Jesus steps foot on the earth again. Where do you see that? Look it up. I'll let you chew on that yourself. But he says, Jesus turns it back around on them. He says, and yet, how is it written of the Son of Man that He will suffer many things and be treated with contempt? You see what just happened in that brief conversation? The apostles start looking ahead to the glorious servant, and Jesus says, no, 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 no. Let's keep focused on the suffering servant. You've got to see this first. Suffering precedes the glory. You've got to deal with the murdered Messiah you got to consider the crucified Christ or you will never get to glory. same is true for us today. You're not going to get to glory until you consider and understand the crucified Christ. And on that first Resurrection Sunday, another example, Jesus mysteriously approached the two confused disciples who were on the road to Emmaus. And he said to them, Luke twenty four twenty five, O foolish men and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and to enter His glory? Suffering first, glory next. And in that marvelous moment, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. What I'm saying is even Jesus' own followers misunderstood the first part of the puzzle they didn't know how to put the pieces together they couldn't fit the pieces of the present together with the prophecies of the past prophecies like Psalm 22 verse 6 I am a worm and not a man a reproach of men and despised by the people all who see me sneer at me they separate with the lip they wag the head wow David must have been really depressed when he wrote that it wasn't about David was it? The Spirit of Christ speaking through David. Or Isaiah 53.3, which we will read in a couple of weeks. He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. And like one from whom men hide their face, he was despised, and we did not esteem him. Which is why the Lord calls him, oh, despised one. The servant of God, the mysterious one, is the despised one how does that fit the Old Testament prophecies with the present condition and it would only be through the crucifixion the apostles would begin to understand Matthew 26 verse 67 says they spat in his face now the apostles the Jews and and the Romans around there they beat him with their fists and others slapped him Matthew 27 39 those passing by were hurling abuse at him wagging their heads. Even the robbers who had been crucified with him were also insulting him with the same words. And slowly but surely, the picture begins to emerge of the despised servant of the Lord. That Jesus really is fulfilling not just the glory, but the suffering as well. So he is the despised one. He is also called the one abhorred by the nation. Not by the nations plural, by the nation singular. What nation? What nation? It's Israel. He is the one abhorred by the nation Israel. Abhorred in the Hebrew is ta'ab, and it means to be detested. I quote from time to time from the Talmud, uh, and Talmud gives us some insight into Jewish thinking and rabbinical thought and even some historical evidences, things like that. But the Talmud, did you know this, also refers to Jesus as the leper. The Jewish Talmud refers to Jesus as the hanged one. And there are other references to him that are very demeaning. He is the one who is detested, abhorred by the nation of Israel. And it's a it's a twisted turn of irony. That the people of Israel, the most detested people group in the history of man, would themselves detest the one who was sent to save them. Incredible. And yet that's exactly what happened. And when I said Sunday, Jesus was the perfect Jew, which is why back in verse, what is it, three. God says, you are my servant Israel. God calls Jesus, calls Messiah Israel because He's the perfect representation of Israel. But not only because He fulfilled everything like a perfect Jew would, but also like every other Jew before and after Him, He would suffer. He would be detested. He wore, He took on the detesting, the abhorrence of the world against His people. He took it on Himself. The perfect Jew, detested by the world, like the Jewish people, but also abhorred by His own. Now, to be fair, not all Jews detested Him. You know, the early church was all Jewish when it first began. And even today, a lot of Jews don't detest Jesus. No, they simply are indifferent to Him. Which I think is worse. You know, Jesus said, either be hot or cold. thing is, if if you have hatred for or detest for Jesus, and I'm not suggesting that you do this, but if you do, at least there's passion there. At least there's, you know, and when you got passion there, there's something to work with. But when you're indifferent, when you can really care less, that's when there's a real problem. And far too many today, uh, Jews and Gentiles alike, are just indifferent to Jesus, to the church thing, to those Christians. The leaders of the Jewish nation absolutely detested Jesus. Matthew 27.41 says in the same way the chief priests also along with the scribes and the elders were mocking and saying he saved others, he cannot save himself he's a king of Israel (coughs) excuse me let him now come down from the cross and we'll believe in him so the Jewish rulers, the Jewish leaders detested him, so did the Gentiles they weren't the only ones who rejected Jesus the Gentiles did as well the rulers of the world, 1 Corinthians 2.7 Paul says we speak God's wisdom in a mystery, the hidden wisdom which God predestined before the ages to our glory, the wisdom which none of the rulers of this age has understood. For if they had understood it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. If they had put the puzzle pieces together, they would have realized who Jesus was, seen Him in His first coming, and they wouldn't have crucified Him, which is why God did it the way He did. It's why he didn't show the picture of Jesus first and then give the prophecies because if he had, they wouldn't have crucified him. And you have to have the cross before you have the kingdom. You've got to have the suffering before you can have the glory. So the abhorrence of Messiah was not just a crime of Israel. It was a crime of humanity. Because the servant not only came to Israel, he came, number three, to be the servant of rulers. He's the despised one. He's the one abhorred by the nation. And he is the servant of rulers. I like that. The servant of rulers. I mean, let that settle on your mind just for a moment that the king of kings became the servant of kings. That he stepped down from his throne, not just to walk the palace, he stepped down from his throne to serve men who would sit on thrones and think themselves wise. To serve those who would elevate themselves on earth. Jesus said in Matthew 20, verse 25, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great men exercise authority over them. It is not this way among you. Whoever wishes to be great among you shall be your servant and whoever wishes to be first among you shall be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served but to serve and to give His life a ransom for many. It's amazing. And it is, by the way, the pattern. You know this. The pattern we're called to follow. To be the servants. To be great by serving. Not to elevate ourselves but literally to demean ourselves. To take the towel to bend the knee and to serve our fellow man, believers, non-believers alike, to be servants in this world. That's the sign that we see in our king, the servant of rulers. Now for all these descriptions, the despised one, the abhorred by the nation, the servant of rulers, the Lord now responds with encouraging words to His servant. He says, kings will see and arise and princes will also bow down because of the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel who has chosen you. Thus says the Lord, in a favorable time I have answered you, and in a day of salvation I have helped you. I will keep you and give you for a covenant of the people to restore the land, to make them inherit the desolate heritages. God talks about two great days here. The result of the servant's work. In encouraging his servant, he says, Listen, I know you feel like this is all in vain. I know you're hurting. I know you're discouraged. In fact, I think that's why Moses and Elijah appeared with Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. It was to encourage Him. They were talking about the cross. They were talking about what He was about to suffer. And they were sent, I believe, to bring encouragement to Jesus at just the right time. But now the Lord, through Isaiah, He's speaking to the Spirit of Christ. He's having this conversation and He's saying two great things come right out of your willingness to serve your obedience unto death. Two days. The day of salvation. The day of salvation, he says, in a favorable time I have answered you and in a day of salvation I have helped you. When is the day of salvation? Right now. We are currently in the day of salvation. It began the moment Jesus resurrected from the dead and it continues all the way until He calls us out, until He calls us home, the day of salvation. How do we know that that is what is being talked about here? Because Paul tells us 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 2. You might even just note that in your margins of your Bibles. 2 Corinthians 6.2, Paul quotes Isaiah. He says, At the acceptable time I listened to you, and on the day of salvation I helped you. Behold, Paul said, the acceptable time, now is the acceptable time. Now is the day of salvation. It's today. It is this moment. It's the age that we are walking in and living in. And by the way, notice, up in verse 8 at the beginning of it, Notice that the favorable time, this day of salvation, it is God's response to His servant. See what He says? In a favorable time, I have answered you. In a day of salvation, I have helped you. I have answered you, which means the servant is the one who is asking for the day of salvation. One of the things I'm convinced that Jesus prayed about in all the many prayers that He prayed as He walked the earth was salvation. That He was praying for the lost. That He was praying for the lost sheep of the tribes of Israel first, but then when they didn't respond, that He's praying now for the Gentiles as well. We even see this coming out of John 17. And that great prayer that He prayed on the last night of His life. How He prayed not only for those who believed in Him, but those who would believe in Him through their witness. Jesus praying for salvation. He is the one who intercedes on our behalf for salvation. Romans 8.34 Christ Jesus is He who died, yes, rather, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. And Hebrews 7.25, He is able also to save forever those who draw near to God through Him, since He always lives to make intercession for them. So the first day, my servant, the Lord would say, my servant, it's not in vain, because your death is providing for all a man a day of salvation. But it's also providing a day of restoration. As he says in the latter half of the verse, he says, I will keep you and give you for a covenant of the people to restore the land and to make them inherit the desolate heritages. What, is, what does this mean? I, I'm making you, he says, a covenant for the people. The word covenant, Hebrew students, verit. You remember what covenant means? It means to cut, to cut covenant. As we see that example where God says to Abraham, I want you to take the animals and I want you to cut them and lay them on either side. There will be a pathway of blood. And Abraham did that understanding the idea of a covenant. Two people come together. They take an ox or a lamb. They carve that animal in half. They lay the pieces on either side. There's blood in the middle. And they walk the path of blood together. And in so doing, they say, we are making covenant together. And if you break this covenant, may you be like this lamb on the ground may you be the barbecue if you don't keep your word and in Abraham's case remember he didn't walk the path of blood he fell asleep God did it God went through as a flaming oven as a torch he went through and came back and Abraham realized that the covenant was unconditional but here God says I I make you the covenant I cut you as the covenant my servant the covenant that requires the shedding of blood Hebrews nine twenty two according to the law to the law one may almost say all things are cleansed with blood and without shedding of blood there is no forgiveness no covenant but Jesus himself when we talk about the new covenant Jesus is the new covenant. Jesus is the Lamb who was cut for the covenant to happen. The unconditional promise of the grace of God to anyone who simply believes in His name. He is the servant who rules and reigns over the coming kingdom and that servant is the covenant of that kingdom. And it's marvelous. Hebrews 12.24 says, You've come to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood which speaks speaks better than the blood of Abel. Talking about the sprinkled blood of Jesus Himself, who is the covenant. And, And what that means practically, tangibly, it means in the Millennial Kingdom, at any moment, if anyone doubts the sincerity of the covenant of God, all they need to do is look at Jesus. Because the covenant is right there before Him. The covenant stands before them. The covenant, every time he raises his hands toward his people to bless them, has scars in his hands. Proof once again of the covenant of the shedding of blood. He says, saying to those, verse 9, who are bound, go forth. To those who are in darkness, show yourselves. Along the roads they will feed, and their pasture will be on all bare heights. Their pasture will be on bare heights. That means that the bare heights are going to be rich with food and provision. They will not hunger or thirst, nor will the scorching heat or the sun strike them down. What we suffer so much from here in northwest Washington. (laughs) For he who has compassion on them will lead them. He will guide them to springs of water. What a homecoming. Those two verses describing the homecoming of people back to the land, coming back to the Lord at the outset of that millennial kingdom. And the Lord is saying to His servant, you did not toil in vain. It's all good. Here's the outcome of your service. Here's the result of all that you suffered. Look at this. A day of salvation. A day of restoration going on in verse 11. He says, I will make all my mountains a road. And my highways will be raised up. And behold, these will come from afar. And lo, these will come from the north and from the west. And these from the land of Sinim. Shout for joy, O heavens, and rejoice, O earth. Break forth into joyful shouting, O mountains, for the Lord has comforted... There's that key word again. He has comforted His people, and He will have compassion on His afflicted. It's marvelous. What's the land of Sinim? Where does that come from? And what does that have to do with this this passage here. Sinim, gang, is mentioned one time, one other time in Scripture. Genesis 10, verse 17. Genesis 10, you Bible students know, that is the table of nations. In fact, it's a great place to go if ever you're looking at a name in Scripture and you're trying to place it somewhere, go back to Genesis 10. Because there are so many nations and people groups that are listed throughout that chapter that will come up again in other places in Scripture. So in Genesis 10, 17, we see the Sinites, S-I-N-I-T-S, the Sinites from the land of Sinim. Who are these people? Can you guess? China, and East Asian. There's very good evidence and reason to believe it is the Chinese people, Chi- Chinese, the Chinese. Now, some have said, no, it can't be the Chinese because the Chinese weren't really established until 500 years after Isaiah in the time of the Zen dynasty when that was established. And Zen is where China gets its name from the the Zen dynasty. And so this was later. You know, For one thing, God's really not bound by time, so that's never an issue. Whether it happened before or after is beside the point God knows it's going to happen. But the truth is we know that a feudal kingdom by the same name existed as early as 897 B.C. So all the way back to days just prior to uh, Isaiah, there there were in Far East Asia, in the land of China today, in that region, there was a feudal kingdom known as the Sinites. The Zenim. So the people were there. But, but I digress. The point is this. The days of salvation and the days of restoration, that millennial kingdom, is far bigger than the people just hearing from Isaiah in this speech. Okay, Isaiah is saying, I'm going to bring you back. I'm going to bring you back. I'm going to bring you back. Remember he just talked down Babylon. Remember he just talked about a few chapters earlier, Cyrus, who was going to conquer Babylon, that his people were going to go into captivity but they were going to come back. That was just a partial fulfillment. That would just be a picture of what God's talking about but not the big picture. In this encouraging word from the Lord to His servant, to Jesus, He's saying that your service is going to result in exiles, listen, in exiles of every tribe, people, and nation coming back to me in the land. Not just Israel. It's not replacement theology. Because Israel does return. And the promise has been and always has been to Israel for this great kingdom. But the kingdom has a bigger purpose. Remember what he said back in verse 6? It is too small a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob to restore the preserved ones of Israel. I'll also make you a light of the nations, so my salvation may reach to the very end of the earth. So listen again now to verse 10. Listen to verse 10. Proof positive that he's talking about far more than simply the Jewish people who will be restored. They will not hunger or thirst, nor will the scorching heat or sun strike them down. For he who has compassion on them will lead them and will guide them to springs of water. Okay, the complete fulfillment to this I will read to you. It is in Revelation chapter 7, which describes the tribulation saints gathered together before Jesus. That's what he's talking about here. Think about verse 10. Listen to this. Revelation chapter 7, verse 13. You know the scene. John is in heaven, and he describes multiplied millions, a number uncountable, far more than he could eat. One, two, three, twenty, nine hundred, four billion, I can't do it. (laughs) Multiplied millions there in heaven around the throne, worshiping God. And as he's standing there trying to figure out who this is, he describes them, multiplied millions from every tribe, people, and tongue under heaven, worshiping the Lord. And in verse 13, one of the elders answered, saying... These who are clothed in the white robes, who are they and where have they come from? Now John didn't have a clue, but it was a leading question. The elder was trying to say, hey John, I want you to think about this. And I said to him, John writes, my Lord, you know. And he said to me, these are the ones who come out of the great tribulation. And they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. For this reason, they are before the throne of God. They serve Him day and night in His temple. And He who sits on the throne will spread His tabernacle over them. Listen, they will hunger no longer, nor thirst anymore, nor will the sun beat down on them, nor any heat. For the Lamb is the center. in the center of the throne will be their shepherd and will guide them to springs of the water of life. And God will wipe every tear from their eyes. Gang, John is not just quoting Isaiah 49:10, he is witnessing it. He is seeing it fulfilled before his very eyes, and the fulfillment was far bigger than John a Jew would have known or could have realized or imagined at that time. For a Jew to read Isaiah and to fully believe Messiah was going to save the people is one thing, but for a Jew to read Isaiah and say he's going to save us And He's going to save lost people who miss the rapture of the church too. That's how far-reaching the salvation of God is going to be in this world. And if I sound like I'm bordering on universalism, understand nobody will be saved but by the name of Jesus Christ. Through faith in Jesus Christ. And yet, there will be a massive amount of people who miss the rapture. Who are not called up in that time who don't understand, who are indifferent to Jesus today, and yet will be saved by the grace of God. So let's not evangelize anymore and not worry about it. Let's just let them, you know, find out. No, no, no. (laughs) We don't let them wait and find out at that time because the loss will be great. No rapture. Missing out on the place prepared for them by Jesus, for us by Jesus right now. Missing out on on a place that is so specific, so reserved for the church. You know, for those who believe without seeing, there is a special dispensation for followers of Jesus in this age. And you want to be part of that. Trust me, you do. In the coming kingdom, your reign, your rule in Jesus' government will be wonderful. You don't want to miss that. And you also don't want to be here during the tribulation. And you don't want to have to lose your head for your faith, which you will if you're here at that time. So John just sees this remarkable thing. And the Lord declares comfort to His servant by declaring the outcome of His servant's sacrifice. It's marvelous. Meanwhile, back at the ranch, Zion suddenly cries out in despair and the Lord responds to it. Verse 14. But Zion said, The Lord has forsaken me and the Lord has forgotten me. Zion says that. Not Israel. Huh? I'm not sure we, I'll I'll pull you guys in this with me. I'm not sure that I fully comprehend the love of God for Zion. Or the passion of God for Jerusalem. For the location itself. But also for all that it stands for, all that it represents. Psalm 48, verse 2, Beautiful in elevation, the joy of the whole earth is Mount Zion in the far north, the city of the great king. Psalm 50, verse 2, Out of Zion, the perfection of beauty God has shown forth. Psalm 87, verse 2, The Lord loves the gates of Zion more than all the dwelling places of Jacob. Psalm 132, verse 13, The Lord has chosen Zion He has desired it for His habitation. This is my resting place forever. Here I will dwell, for I have desired it. And He is talking about Yerushalayim, Jerusalem, Zion, on planet Earth, in Israel. It's it's really kind of stunning. The Lord God, Creator of all things, would look at one tiny little spot on the map of the globe that He created in the massive universe and say, that's where I want to live. Now I've joked around with you before, saying when we come back, with the Lord, back for the millennial kingdom, and we are ruling and reigning for Him, with Him, in His government on earth. That I got Maui.
1: Okay. You
0: know what God says? I got Zion.
1: That's mine.
0: That's where I choose to dwell. There's something incredibly personal and very special to God about Zion. And so, here in the middle of <coughs> chapter 49, He uses a literary device of personification to give voice to Zion. As though the city itself blurts out, speaks out, cries out. As though Jerusalem itself, from a place of desolation, says the Lord has forsaken me, the Lord has forgotten me. And he responds, can a woman forget her nursing child and have no compassion on the son of her womb even these may forget, but I will not forget you. Behold, I've inscribed you on the palms of my hands. Your walls are continually before me, he says. God's tender love for Zion. And, and you got to track with me. He's not yet talking about the people of Israel. Because a little later in the chapter, he'll refer to the children of Zion. And that's Israel. But right now, he's just talking about Zion itself. Yes, the city, and yes, all that it entails, all that it represents. And, and again, this is kind of big. I, I, think, I think there's something that we're not going to understand until he shows us that picture. And then the puzzle piece of Zion will finally click into place for our minds. But God's tenderness, his love for Zion surpasses even that of a mother's love. A mother holding and nursing her child. I always thought that was Israel. You know, that verse, Anytime I would read that, can a mother or a woman forget her nursing child and have no Even those may forget, I will not forget you. And I've always thought, well, he's talking about his people. And then by extension, well, yeah, and he's the God, he's the Father who doesn't forget. He's like the mother who cannot forget the nursing child, and that's how he feels about me. And that's all well and good. But he's talking about Zion. He does not forget. He even says, I inscribed you on the palms of my hands. Now, Cheryl will often write notes to herself on the palms of her hands, you know, to remember. I just wash it off and forget anyway. But she—that's kind of how she does it. But there's more going on here. This is more than a holy post-it. Okay, it's more than some some name scrawled out on the hand of God. He says here, "I have inscribed you, Zion." What does that mean? It means Zion itself. Is written, not the word, not the word, Zion itself, and all that it entails is inscribed into, carved into, engraved into the hand of God. In other words, well, the word inscribed, the Hebrew word, it literally means to carve out, so carving out in his hand Zion. Even more so, the word means a decree, a law. Same word used to describe the the, the inscription or the carving out of the Ten Commandments. He says, I've carved you out in the palm of my hand. Well, what does that mean? Very simply, God holds Zion in the palm of his hand. Whatever happens to Jerusalem, God is fully aware. He's holding it. He's not busy off somewhere else in the world and Jerusalem gets overrun by the Ottoman Turks. No, he knew. He's watching it happen in his hand. He holds Zion. What exactly are the walls that are continually before him? Your walls continually before me. A little further down in Isaiah 60 verse 18 tells us, Violence will not be heard again in your land, nor devastation or destruction within your borders, but you will call your walls salvation. Yeshua, You will call your walls Yeshua and your gates praise. As though God is holding Zion and Jesus encompasses Zion, the very salvation of Zion itself. Again, I said it's very, very personal. He goes on in verse 17 and says, Your builders hurry! I don't ever want to tell you to scratch something out of your Bibles, but the word builders there in the Hebrew is bene, which means Sons. I'm not sure really why it's translated builders. I didn't have time to dig in and research that out, but it should be sons. Your sons hurry. Zion, you feel deprived, you feel desolate, you feel childless, but guess what? Your children are on their way. They are hurrying home. Your destroyers and devastators will depart from you, he says. Lift up your eyes and look around. All of them gather together. They come to you. As I live, declares the Lord. And you know when God says that, This is serious business. You will surely put on all of them as jewels and bind them on as a bride. And here we see he speaks to Zion and he says that when the redeemed and restored remnant come back into her, they will be like like jewels adorning a bride. Zion, your children are coming home. You are not so desolate as you may have thought. Verse 19. For your waste and desolate places and your destroyed land surely... Now you will be too cramped for the inhabitants, and those who swallowed you will be far away. The children of whom you were bereaved will yet say in your ears, This place is too cramped for me. You can almost hear it, you know, with a kind of a Yiddish accent. Hey, they!
1: <laughs>
0: this place is too cramped for me. <laughs> And he says, make room for me that I may live here. And of course, the point is that in this return to Zion at the outset of the millennial kingdom, it is so massive, so huge that Zion will be busting at the seams. It won't feel like there's any room for anyone because everyone wants to be there. Everyone is filling this place. And you know, I was thinking about this and here's some good news for you. (laughs) It will not be a dismal day as a few stragglers, those who are left in some kind of faith order, come wallowing back in to the kingdom. It's not going to be like, oh man, we survived. There's Timmy and there's little Joe and there's Sally and boy, there's four or five of us. But we made it, Lord. We hung on. No. It's going to be huge. It's big. Don't be dismayed, brothers and sisters in Christ. You know, it's easy to look around in this world and to feel like we're the only ones. Or to feel like the church is really small. To feel like we're perhaps minority here. The truth is, God's city Zion will be overflowing with God's people. And the outside of the millennial kingdom is going to blow our minds when we finally see what God has accomplished through the ages. And we will not then be those who are just hanging on, hoping that perhaps we can hang on and keep get prayer back into the public school. Or maybe there can be a revival in America to save our country. We're not going to be worried about that stuff. We're just going to be going, man, this is huge. I had no idea. And I want you to be encouraged because there are times where I get discouraged. Clark asked me to write out a letter to Whitworth. Uh, a couple of days ago, and I'm like, for what it's worth, I'll do it, sure, you know. But he's on that task force. We've talked about this before about the, what the college is going through and trying to deal with and, and handle in a biblically appropriate way the homosexual agenda. And he asked me to write a letter. I did. Four pages later, I'm like, I think this is probably enough. <laughs> but I'm writing it out, <coughs> and I was just thinking, I don't know that it's any worth any good. You know, I'm just such a, I'm just a tiny little voice here. You know, I'm not like the leader of the Presbyterian denomination. I'm not like some, you know, international. I'm just a guy in a barn, really. And you want my to
1: sing this letter out?
0: That sounds really weird, doesn't
1: it? I'm a
0: guy in a barn. But, but sometimes in our in our faith walk, when we look at our lives and we feel so small and we feel so insignificant and we feel so so tiny as compared to the wickedness and the evil in the world. We're not. Not to Jesus. We are part of the biggest thing that has ever happened or will ever happen on planet earth. In fact, we're part of the biggest thing that has ever happened in eternity. And God has chosen to make it so. Hallelujah. That's great news. So verse 21 going on. Then you will say in your heart, still talking to Zion, Who has begotten these for me? since I have been bereaved of my children and in barren and an exile and a wanderer. And who has reared these? Behold, I was left alone. From where did these come? Watch this. Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will lift up my hand to the nations and set up my standard to the peoples. And they will bring your sons in their bosom and your daughters will be carried on their shoulders. Kings will be your guardians and their princesses, your nurses they will bow down to you with their faces to the earth and lick the dust of your feet. Mm-mm, good. And you will know that I am the Lord and those who hopefully wait for me will not be put to shame. The humbled nations. Now, and the peoples of the world that we all thought were so high and mighty, they are the ones now carrying the remnant back to Zion. They are the ones who have come to their senses, they see the Lord, they recognize His hand in all these things, and His love for Zion, and so they tenderly, lovingly bring the children of Zion back. And that is Israel. The remnant returns. Victor Buchsposon writes that licking the dust off the feet is an act of supreme homage in oriental imagery. Rick Crawford writes, licking the dust off of the feet is just gross.
1: <laughs> but they're going to do it.
0: They're going to do it. And you know, look at the end of verse 23. This is one that's just good to, to seal in your minds tonight. Those who hopefully wait for me will not be put to shame. You're not going to be ashamed. But, but, but what if people are offended when I talk about, you're not going to be ashamed. Yeah, but what... What if, what if it all starts to come down? You know, let me tell you something that happened to me this week. It's really weird. met with a guy who, who said, I've got some info for you. Some intel you need to know. Oh, okay, cool. Yeah, I heard some people in Starbucks talking about a pastor who went to Israel. And I know you've been to Israel, so I'm thinking it could be you. And he says, and this pastor went to Israel and took his laptop and, and established while he was there a different email address and downloaded Child porn and took it back to the states with him, and his laptop was uh, taken away at the border. And I was just want you to know the word's out. I'm like, dude, really? <laughs> <laughs> First of all, who? <laughs> Secondly, still have my laptop, and thirdly, I, I, I just where does this come from? But I tell you what, I got in my car, and I'm driving home, and thinking you know how easy it would be to some, for someone to start a bizarre rumor about me and and completely at least attempt to destroy what God's doing in the barn, little thing? And it kind of scared me a little bit and worried me a little bit. And I don't even know why I shared that. We, oh, those who hopefully wait for me will not be put to shame. And I, I you know, read this verse and I thought, God is so good. God is so good. People may lie about you. They may share things. They may gossip. They may bring false witness against you. They did with Jesus, didn't they? It was false testimony that brought about the crucifixion. And those things may happen, but those of us who are truly waiting on the Lord, we will not be put to shame. And I was so encouraged by that, I thought, okay, I'm not going to... Worry about that, I'm not going to put out an ad saying, yes, I go to Israel, but no, I'm not into child porn. (laughs) Bizarre, bizarre. Some of the stuff I hear. Verse 24, can the prey be taken from the mighty man or the captives of a tyrant be rescued? Well, can it happen? It certainly can and has and did. Right there, that verse is speaking about the return from Babylon, the exiles he's saying, hey, look, can I do that? Did I bring the people out of Babylonian exile back into the land? This has never happened. Conquered lands don't go home. It's not what goes on. Surely, thus says the Lord, verse 25, even the captives of the mighty man will be taken away, and the prey of the tyrant will be rescued. For I, note this, I will contend with the one who contends with you, and I will save your souls. I will feed your oppressors with their own flesh and they will become drunk with their own blood as with sweet wine and all flesh will know that I, the Lord, am your Savior and your Redeemer the Mighty One of Jacob and that is heavy stuff, gang that is serious business it doesn't get more serious than that and I've I've said this before, I'll say it again to contend with Zion is to contend with God If you go head to head with Zion, if you try to take on Jerusalem, if you set yourself against the Jewish people and against, I would say, the modern nation of Israel, you are going head to head with God Himself. Don't do it. Don't stand on street corners in Seattle and hold up signs calling Israel an apartheid state. Don't do it. You contend with Zion, you contend with me, says the Lord. As far back as God talking to Abraham. He says, I will bless those who bless you. And the one who curses you, I will curse. Genesis 12.3 Zechariah 12.3 It will come about in that day that I will make Jerusalem a heavy stone for all the peoples. And all who lift it will be severely injured. And all the nations of the earth will be gathered against it. Bad idea. If you contend with Zion, you contend with me, says the Lord. Isaiah 54, 17, a great verse. No weapon that is formed against you will prosper. And every tongue that accuses you in judgment, you will condemn. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord, and their vindication is from me, declares the Lord. Good news, servants of the Lord. That works for you too. Let me read the verse again. No weapon that is formed against you will prosper every tongue that accuses you in judgment you will condemn this is the heritage of the servants of the Lord are you a servant of the Lord? grafted in along with the chosen people a chosen one you have become a royal priesthood if you are a servant of the Lord today no weapon formed against you will prosper there's nothing the enemy can make up or do or try to to cause you to stumble or fall or undermine you he can't do it it's not going to work We are grafted into the promise and any servant of the Lord stands strong because of the Lord. Paul put it this way. You know the passage. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation? Or distress? Or persecution? Or famine? Or nakedness? Or peril? Or sword? By the way, note he just said seven things. The complete attack of the enemy will not prosper against you just as it is written for your sake we are being put to death all day long we were considered a sheep to be slaughtered but in all these things we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us and Paul doesn't stop there and I can so relate to him. He says, For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor death, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. In other words, no weapon formed against you will prosper. God comforts Zion. And he does so by saying, I will contend with those who contend with you. He comforts the servant of the Lord first, saying, it's going to result in glorious things, all of your suffering. He now comforts Zion, saying, you're not going to be so bereaved as you think you are. Your children are coming home. And now, in the first few verses of chapter 50, he turns Zion from Zion to gently speak to her children, the people of Israel. Thus says the Lord, where is the certificate of divorce by which I have sent your mother away? Or to whom of my creditors did I sell you? Now, wait a minute. you got to think about what he's saying. Where is the certificate of divorce by which I sent your mother away? To whom of my creditors did I sell you? God is pointing out here the absolute ridiculousness of the very idea that he would forsake the children of Zion. He's saying this is ludicrous. How do we know that? Well, first of all, he asked, where is the divorce certificate? Where is it, he's saying. It can't be found because there is none. God never divorced Israel. He never sent the mother away. He never said, I'm I'm done with you. I'm finished. We're going to move on to some other program. You're through. He never did it. Secondly, he says, to which of my creditors did I sell you? That's an even more ridiculous question, because let me ask you, does the God who owns everything have creditors? Why would he need them? So there is no divorce certificate, and there are no creditors to the king. No divorce certificate. No creditors. And the Lord makes something absolutely crystal clear here that you and I need to understand. And that is this. The distance we may sometimes feel from the Lord is never His doing. It's ours. He doesn't put you away. You put yourself away. He didn't give Israel a sense of divorce or a sense of enslavement. He didn't do that. Israel did it. Rick, where are you getting this? The second half of the verse, Behold, you were sold for your iniquities and for your transgressions your mother was sent away. I didn't do this, the Lord says. You did. I didn't cause this. You did. I didn't ask for this, the Lord says. You did. If God had indiscriminately chosen to divorce his people, Israel, then listen, restoration would have been impossible. God doesn't divorce and remarry, no chance. When it's done, it's done. But he didn't ask for a separation. And he didn't offer enslavement. Their own sin caused it. James makes this clear. James 1.13 You may be familiar with this. Let no one say when he is tempted I am being tempted by God for God cannot be tempted by evil. And he himself does not tempt anyone but each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. And then when lust is conceived it gives birth to sin and when sin is accomplished it brings forth death. Whose fault is that? Mine! Mine! Yours, not His. And it's so critical to understand that this is what happens when we sin. Our sin finds us out. Our sin separates us from the from the Lord. Our sin enslaves us. But here's the good news. God's desire is to restore from separation caused by our sin. He wants to bring us back. He wants to redeem from slavery, to to buy us back. And Israel is simply hist- history's beautiful picture of this. God uses Israel as the example. The whoring wife who he says, Come home, darling one. The indebted servant who he lays out the cash to buy back, only it's not cash, is it? It's the blood of his son. We sin, we separate. God reaches across His hand spans that distance, and He reaches to bring us back. Verse 2, Why was there no man when I came? When I called, why was there none to answer? Once again, I I hear the voice of the Lord choking in His throat. As He emotionally feels this, He's talking about a lack of response by the people to His prophets. "I, I sent My Word to you. You did an answer. I showed up and you were indifferent. And I hear echoes of, of this verse in the words of Jesus, Luke 18, 8, when He says, when the Son of Man comes, will He find faith on the earth? Bottom line is if it were up to us, we'd all be divorced slaves, every one of us. Divorced from the Lord and enslaved to sin. If it was left to us, that's the best we could ever accomplish. But His hand spans the distance is my hand so short that it cannot ransom or have I no power to deliver and then he reminds his people Israel of some previous delivery behold I dry up the sea with my rebuke I make the rivers a wilderness their fish stink for lack of water and die of thirst I clothe the heavens with blackness and make sackcloth their covering remember God says who you're dealing with here You think you're far away. You think you're distant. Zion, you think you're forsaken. No, I'm God. I'm the one who parted the sea and you walked through. I'm the one who made the skies go dark. I'm the one who shook the mountain. I am the mighty one. And God is saying to Israel there in verse 3, remember my omnipotence. Remember that I am all-powerful and nothing is too hard for me. As we finish tonight, listen, I I would... Slide this in here alongside it. Not only is he all powerful, he is all loving. And with that mighty power and with that almighty love, no one is beyond his salvation. As we talked about on Sunday, no one is beyond his salvation. The prophet Micah, chapter 7, verse 18, said, Who is a God like you who pardons iniquity and passes over the rebellious act of the remnant of his possession? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in unchanging love. Quick comment, give you one more verse and we're going to finish here. He delights in unchanging love. I've been sharing with you a bit about the Whitworth campus situation and and the struggle that they're facing. And I read a letter just the other day that was written by an extremely liberal pastor who's who's saying that Whitworth is out to lunch, he's saying in essence, and and this is almost a direct quote, culture has changed and we need to catch up. Let me point out to you again, he delights in unchanging love. Culture may change, God does not. His righteousness does not change. His moral standards do not change. His call to us to be holy because He is holy does not change. And we can say, good, then homosexuality is wrong. Yeah, so is lying. So is disobedience to parents. So is, you know, fudging on your taxes. And we can name, right here among us, we could just pull out a little piece. We're not going to do it, but we could pull out a piece of paper in each one. Just write down one sin from the last week. Just one thing you did that you know was probably not pleasing to the Lord. And that would be enough. Praise God that though His holiness is unchanging, His love is also unchanging. And His desire to forgive and restore His people. 1 John 4.8 says, The one who does not love does not know God. For God is love. By this the love of God was manifested in us. That God has sent His only begotten Son into the world so that the world might live through Him. In this is love. Not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. No divorce certificate, no creditors. Just the hand of God spanning the sin of man to offer redemption and salvation. And today is the day of salvation. And the day of restoration is soon to come. Praise the Lord. Let's stand and pray together. Lord, I am honored to stand among a group of people who are called the servants of the Lord. A group of people who have chosen not out of our perfection, our goodness, our holiness, but chosen simply by the freedom that You've given us to do so. We have chosen to serve You. We have chosen Jesus as our Savior. We have chosen Your Lordship. And we receive it and we we accept it, Lord. And We desire to walk as Your servants. And Father, I pray protection (coughs) for every one of us that no weapon formed against us would prosper. I pray, Father, though, that any weapon that is used against us, whatever the outcome in our own lives, that it would bring glory to the name of Jesus. And Father, if we should have to suffer before glory comes, if we should have to follow in the pattern of Jesus, if we should have to pick up our crosses, and follow after You. Lord, may we do so with joy, rejoicing because, well, Jesus, You said, in the same way they persecuted the prophets before us, but more than that, in the same way they persecuted You, the servant of the Lord. Well, we praise Your name, Jesus. and We thank You. We glorify You for all the things that were formed against You, all of the false testimony, all of the lies, all of the brutality, even to the point of Your death. We recognize that it resulted in the glory of Your name. And we are just in awe before You. We thank You for the grace that comes of Your death. We thank You for the truth provided by Your life. And we thank You, Father, for putting the pieces together so that we could see such a beautiful and amazing picture of Your Son.
1: Lord, we praise You and we love You in Jesus' name. Amen.